It's Time to Talk, a campaign that we have been running as a radio station on our social media for the last few weeks. We thought we'd put everything together into a series of podcasts for you, joined by some special guests. My name's Chris Felton. Hi, I'm Terry, Director of Ellington Timepiece. I started designing watches from my bedroom. I named my first collection after my dog, who helped me whilst I was struggling with mental health. Two years on, I'm selling my watches around the world while helping to raise awareness for mental health. My name's Oliver Bell from Newcastle United Foundation and I work on the Be A Game Changer campaign to try and raise the awareness of mental health, to try and change the culture of mental health conversations. I am Believing Bruce. I have got a sensational YouTube body language project going on and I also deliver mental health programmes in the corporate arena. My name's Emily Pearson and I'm founder and managing director of Our Minds Work. I have 22 years working in the mental health field with young people and adults but the past four years have been working specifically in workplace mental health. My name is David Simpson, I'm locality manager for Mental Health Matters. We specialise in providing employment support, advocacy services, floating support and housing support. Quick fire, how do we improve mental health standard? How do we improve aspects of our own well-being day to day what do we do to change things we're creatures of habit we get up at the same time we drive the same route to work we go home we don't do anything about it we haven't changed our day before we know it another week's gone by another month's gone by in some cases how do we get rid of these habits what do we do what can be done to improve our well-being so one thing would be okay well, how are you potentially looking at a situation you can ask yourself how differently you could look at that particular situation so say for example we've all been in a supermarket and you've been in a supermarket you've been fine there's one person in front you're talking to the checkout assistant and then all of a sudden you say that person's taking too long because you've thought about that particular situation in that way, you start releasing certain hormones, that starts having an impact on your body, that's why you get frustrated, you, you know, you get angry. They're to blame for you being late. That's right, absolutely. Yeah. Or, or they're to blame for you thinking that they're not being quick enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But a different lens you could put on, so that's what I call from a coaching perspective, put that different lens on. You think, okay, that's an 85-year-old lady. She might have no family. That might be the only social contact that she has for the next three days. In an instant, you've changed the way you look at that potential situation. You've changed the way you feel about it. Yeah, Mm. improves your mental health. Now, this can be applied every single day or hundreds of situations. But what you've got to do is raise your awareness to how you're looking at something first in order to be able to change that different perspective. Now, again, that's a simple tool that anybody can use. Now, back to Terry Ellington. Tell us a little bit more about what started it all off for you in the first place. Tell us a bit more about your journey. For me, when I was 16, the night before really everything changed, I had a full-blown panic attack. And I generally had no idea what what was happening, what I was going through or anything, and the the paramedics ended up coming out. Now, the next day that I woke up, I knew that there was something not right and I couldn't put into words what it was that that I was feeling. I got ready and it was almost like my head and and the way I was feeling, I was exhausted from the panic attack that I had the night before. But it was almost like this this numb feeling that I couldn't explain and I I didn't understand how to feel. And over a period of days of the routine that I had prior to that panic attack was starting to, like, every minute of every day, it was starting to become, like, this weird feeling and it was becoming difficult. And I remember the, the first time that I went after that panic attack, I went to a shop same shop that I've been going to for a long for a long time and I was stood in in one of the aisles and it was almost like this feeling of dread just overtook my body and I could hear every single conversation I could feel every type of an emotion my, my arms were starting to get like pins and needles and I was going back into that feeling that I had 
the night that I had that panic attack and it was almost like I need to get out I need to get out and I started to panic and we ended up leaving and I didn't go back to that shop for a long time it was almost like before that panic attack my life was so different the next day that I woke up my whole life changed and I didn't know how to recognize that I didn't know what was happening there wasn't a lot of information so I was beginning to struggle at that point that's got to feel so helpless almost like you associate that shop and possibly even to this day with that experience you know when am I have you been in since yeah I got yeah yeah well that's great because you'd feel Every time I'm going to feel like that every time I go in there. Mm-hmm. Is that a trigger for that? That mm-hmm. must be awful. It really must. Yeah, it was. And it was like, like I said, my routine, it just kind of went out the window because I wasn't able to do the things that I was able to do that night before I had the panic attack. So it wasn't like a, a kind of a stage over period in months. It was just like woke up yeah. the next day and that was it. Really listening to that. I mean, one thing that I haven't spoke about is the reason why I got into working in mental health 22 years ago was after my own lived experience, which is very, very similar to yours, actually, Terry. Mm. Um, I was diagnosed with clinical depression, panic disorder and an eating disorder as well in my late teens, early 20s. And I was actually a single parent at the time Mm. as well. Until you've been through it, there's no way you could comprehend exactly how much that would impact your life being able just to take for granted the things that you do on a day-to-day. I mean, you must look at things completely different, you know, things that maybe irritated you before that you took for granted before now, you probably see life differently. Some days I couldn't even get out of bed. Mm. I couldn't work. I had to leave the job that I was working in with young people in care at the time. So I couldn't get out of bed, never mind try and think Mm -hmm. more positively Mm -hmm. about somebody. Sometimes I would Mm -hmm. be trying to put my food in the shopping basket and then I would just have to walk out of the shop and leave leave the basket there because I could feel a panic attack coming on to the point where I didn't want to go out, I didn't want to leave the house and we know that panic disorder can also then create um, agoraphobia because the outside world becomes so frightening. Mm -hmm. The safest place to manage a panic attack is Is usually at home. I mean, mine got so bad, it was like over a period of weeks that I had to sit my GCSEs at home. I could no longer go to school. So I was becoming kind of, I mean, at 16 year old, I didn't go to prom. I wasn't there on the last day. So I had, I mean, I had my prom dress upstairs uh-huh. and I didn't, I couldn't go. And I was, and I, I felt at 16, I think at any age, but at 16, when I was going through it, I felt so alone. I mm. couldn't tell my friends because my friends didn't understand. They were leaving school and, you know, getting ready for prom and things like that. And so I felt completely alone. Like you just said there, there's a massive difference to the first day mm. getting, you know, having it. And then later on, like, like me now, I understand it. And I, I have now coping mechanisms, and I can deal with it. But for me, like, and I and I do say this. And I, I don't know if anyone else agrees, but I think the day that I got it, me, uh, I struggled for mental health. It's something that will never go away. It's just something that you learn from the rest of your life to kind of cope with. The narrative, it's like I put it, is it as in talking is really good from a mental health perspective from your own emotional baseline so if you're sprinting and your hamstring goes you might get a little indication first that oh because that's why you pull up because you feel your hamstring going if you didn't get that then your hamstring just pops straight away Mm -hmm. but that's generally you'll get that little indication so that's where talking's really proven to be powerful is then like by talking about things it's more on your radar you're more in tune it helps you to be aware of your normal emotional baseline so talking is really powerful to raise your awareness because sometimes you can't just go on that autopilot and you don't realise like you know over a period of days weeks months whatever it is and again it's specifically for the individual and what they're suffering with Mm -hmm. at that particular time 
But if you're more aware of it, you're more likely to notice stuff that's going on and talking is a really powerful tool for that. Just to go back to what Terry was saying there in terms of when we talk about recovery as well, because as an organisation, we are focused, everything we do has recovery em- embedded in it. Mm-hmm. But it's also recognising that recovery means lots of diff- different things mm-hmm. to different people. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is, you're absolutely right, about kind of working out coping mechanisms of how we manage mm-hmm. whatever the symptoms are. Mm-hmm. Um, and that for some people might be for life. Mm-hmm. Um, medication might be used, but that might be a temporary fix mm-hmm. and people might use other things afterwards. Mm-hmm. So it's about recovery being person-centred and being about what's right for you as an individual. Yeah. When we say coping mechanisms, for people who haven't come to this before, what kinds of examples of things do we have? You know, I know it's specific to the person, but just in, from a general point of view, what sort of things would people suggest that maybe in the first instance that you could do to find out whether or not you are struggling, maybe? My coping mechanisms have kind of changed over over the years. Um, through that journey in those two years, just going back a little bit, I also struggled with um, an eating disorder because I had this fear of choking on food. It was almost like I had to self-learn coping mechanisms instead of, you know, maybe someone offering kind of an idea. So things like, my eating disorder I'd, what I would do is I'd bake a jacket potato and I would have one mouthful of that jacket potato and then I'd have to wait half an hour just to tell myself that I was okay so that was like part of the eating thing and then that eventually I started to add more and then I was lessening the time of eating So th- and then it turned into going out now I was struggling to go out into public places um, with a lots of people and even just going for a walk by myself that was just abs- it was just I couldn't do it um, so around once I was 17 kind of turning 18 I ended up getting a little um, puppy called Sheba who was a black German shepherd and it gave me a routine instead of sitting in bed all day and not wanting to do it and watching TV and things like that it I got up I was puppy training her and I was doing this and feeding her things like that and eventually we had to take her to go and get, you know, the vaccinations that you do with a puppy. And I remember picking her up and I was holding her so tight because I was generally scared to get in the car and go there and things like, and sit in a waiting room. And then eventually we ended up taking her for walks, but it was things like going at the end of the drive, mm-hmm. going to the end of the road. And I was quite, I lived in a little cul-de-sac at the time. So it was just, you know, it was it was enough to walk, but, but enough to be kind of still at home. Within sight of your house. Yeah, within sight of my yeah, house and yeah. things like that, um, which I had kind of like separation anxiety from my dad and my home. So that was helping me. Whereas now, a couple of years later, I threw myself into my business, into my work. But my coping mechanisms have changed so much over the years. And now my coping mechanisms is it's breathing techniques because I've learned and I've learned that panic attacks do end, that they're not there forever, which is what I thought when Mm. I was 16, 17. And it's things like not worrying too much about the future. That was my biggest problem I think when I was 16 so I was worrying too much about things and worrying about this fear of having a panic attack and then it not ending and and now I learn to just deal with things as and when things happen what a thing to deal with I mean at any age at any age yeah. but at 16 when you should be you should have been thinking about god is my hair going to look good for the prom <laughs> that should have been your only worry at 16 yeah. I mean it, 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 you know when you look at what most 16 year olds mm. have to deal with on a day to day it's mm. it's that sort of stuff isn't mm, it I mean yeah. that's that's heavyweight stuff yeah. it really is yeah. people can relate to any number of these things how can they start improving their own well-being your physical well-being we could all work on our diet plans we could all work mm. on getting fit how do we apply the same strategies and techniques if you like to oh. how 
our day-to-day well-being. Thankfully, it's not rocket science because the two are very entwined. So how do we improve well. our physical well-being? Also, used quite often has an implication upon our mental well-being as well. Mm. So personally, my own opinion, what I do, I get on the bike, I go for a run, I go to the gym, I listen to podcasts, I read books, I eat the right things, I speak to the right people. Those are the things that benefit me, and I think people have to sit down and look at the things that benefit them personally too. I think just quickly, I think everybody is so in a way it's so different that different things work for them I mean like you just said there you you go to you know you get on your bike you go out and things like that but when I was 16 I would have never been able to do that for me there's two things it's how do we maintain good mental health Mm. and what works for you and then how do we cope in times that are difficult during challenging times because you're not always going to be using your mindful breathing every day that is a coping strategy Um, not all coping strategies are positive. Mm. We may use drugs and alcohol as coping strategies, which unfortunately can have a more negative impact on our mental health. So it's how do we maintain good mental health when we're well, making sure we are taking our medication, joining groups, having that support that is around us. And then how do we cope when it does become challenging so that we don't fall into another episode of mental illness? Right. Oh, well, in the next episode, we'll take things even further still and talk a little bit more about how to break those day to day habits, how to look after ourselves and how to be the best version of you. And you can find out a lot of advice, a lot of information and places to go and helplines and so forth. If you feel like you need a little bit more of a professional outlook on things on our website in the It's Time to Talk section. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next time.